6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The cloud that overshadowed the tabernacle in Ezekiel, uh, in uh, Exodus 13, the transfiguration in Matthew 17 is again the Shekinah, the Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9 is an example of this. And, uh, and we've alluded to in 2 Corinthians 3, God is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, but we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. Again, we get glimpses of that. Let's move on to verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. See, the next we, we, we saw his preexistence, the next view we have of, is in his condescension. He had been above all humans, above all angels. Yet, he became lower than both in love for humans and in obedience to his heavenly Father. In 2 Corinthians 8 again, it says, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Wow. Can God become man? Can he enter into his creation? Strange idea. That's exactly what Isaiah says in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That's not synonymous, by the way. I don't believe there are some real synonyms. Unto us a child is born. That's the human side of him. Unto us a son is given. He's preexistent, but given to us. The child was born in Bethlehem. The son was given at Golgotha. I want you to notice the two verbs. Jesus was always God's son. Thus he is a son given. In the incarnation he became a man. Thus a child is born, not given. And again, when you get to Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. See, Paul uses three different words to describe what it meant for the eternal son to become man. Morpha is one of them, which points both to the outward shape of an object and, the, and inward to indicate the things that cannot be detected on the surface. First used in the very nature of God in verse 6, and here the very nature of a servant in verse 7. And the other word is homomoia, which is outward appearance or identity. And the word schema, which is the habitus, the, uh, comprising everything in a person which strikes the senses, the figure, the bearing, the discourse, the actions, the manner of life, and so forth. All three words to describe when the Son of God became man. Christ endured all that we endure in this world. It's pressures, it's longings, it's circumstances, it's influences. He was tempted as we are. And that's what Hebrews points out in chapter 4. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
And remember in Matthew 4, the temptations. There were three of them, physical, spiritual, and vocational. And he was even like us with disappointments. He wept real tears over Jerusalem. Remember that, the way Matthew 23 ends, the last few verses? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens but under her wings, but she would not. We have here in these verses the purpose, the tragedy of all history. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That's not finished. The triumph of all history follows. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And those three concepts, the whole, the, the purpose of all history, the tragedy of all history, and the triumph, emblazoned in just three verses. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. You can check it out. But now we're at the nadir of the parabola, if you will. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The cross is the most important event in the history of the universe. It is the central fulcrum of the entire Bible. Two-fifths of Matthew's gospel is concerned with that final week in Jerusalem. Three-fifths of Mark and a third of Luke and nearly half of John. Nearly half of the Gospel of John deals with that last week, basically focusing on the cross, even the death of the cross. It was the initial announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, and she shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That was right up front. Jesus himself spoke of the suffering he was to come in Mark 8 and 9 and so forth linking his mission to the crucifixion. John 12, if, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying what death he should die. What really fascinates me, one of the most interesting places, is in Numbers 21. And it, 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 this, as you may recall, where uh, the children of Israel were being uh, hit by these uh, fiery snakes, these snake bites. And uh, Moses goes to praise to God. God says, put a brass serpent on a pole on top of the hill. All those that look to it will be cured, which he does, and they were. But it's interesting. What a, it's a very strange idiom, for, uh, metaphor for God to use, a brass serpent on a pole. In fact, you can read the entire Old Testament and never understand what that was really, what, why, what was going on there? In fact, a thousand years later, this brass serpent's still around, they're worshiping it, so Hezekiah has to destroy it, Nehushtan, a thing of brass. You don't understand that until you get to the New Testament in John chapter 3, when Jesus explains to Nicodemus, Nicodemus in, in uh, verse 14 of John, of John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And suddenly, the fog lifts. Suddenly you realize that was a deliberate metaphor introduced by God in Numbers 21 that anticipated the cross that was forthcoming in the New Testament. And you see the evidence of design. You realize that these 66 books that we call the Bible, even though penned by over 40 guys, are an integrated message system. And that message system had to be 
deliberately organized by someone from outside the dimension, the constraints of the, the time dimension itself. And God himself does that. And this is one of the, the hundreds and hundreds of examples, but it's one of the most simplest and piercing ones of them all. In fact, it gives rise to the most famous uh, verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. So John 3.16 follows on John 3.14 from this brazen serpent um, idiom, if you will. Now John emphasizes, probably more than any others, that crucifixion was the key to the whole program. You find that in John 2, John 7, 8, 12, and so forth. Jesus reviewed this by going through the entire Old Testament on a seven-mile Bible study on the way to Emmaus. It was his first act after resurrection uh, that we have recorded there that he gives this Bible study, going through the entire Bible, showing that this was God's purpose all the way through. And uh, so there was no depth to which Jesus did not go. He relinquished his rightful position to become the Savior of sinners, but in addition to its theological role in paying a ransom, it also serves as our example. Uh, for even, First uh, Peter makes this point in his first letter, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Wow. Here in Philippians, this is the subject. The sufferings of Jesus as an example of the patient endurance under the strict, uh, strict, uh, strictures of Roman rule. <clears throat> See, Peter continued, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we and ye are healed. So he's our sin bearer. Hebrews 9. But now at the end of the ages he has appeared once for all to remove sin by his sacrifice. You know, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, two goats were chosen. One as a sin offering for the sins of the people, the other to fulfill the role of a scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, Aaron shall lay both of his hands upon the head of the live goat, confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and he shall send him away by the hand of a fit man to the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. This was to remove the sins, bearing it on himself. The first was to provide the blood that would be placed on the mercy seat, representing the payment for the penalty uh, to satisfy divine justice. And all this was anticipated as early as the Garden of Eden, when God himself replaced their self-made coverings. Remember in Genesis 3, verse 21, Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. That was an instruction, a teaching, teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood, they would be covered. The, the Levitical process was anticipated as early as Genesis chapter 3. Jesus died to remove sin, to satisfy divine justice, and to reveal God's love. 1 John 4, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And again, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what's our response? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
See, that exemplary aspect of this is a, is a surprise. So we've been through the nadir, the dip part. Now the apogee follows, the peak of this. Philippians 2.9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Wow. The final picture we have of Jesus in this passage is again in heaven. That's where it started, pre-existent, became man, went through his mission. He's back up there. Four times in his ministry, Jesus spoke on this text. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. That's in, several times in Matthew, several times in Luke, and so forth. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Think about that. He lived the text. The first half of each clause has an active verb. The, se the second half of each clause has a passive verb. Everything that is said in the first four verses of Philippians, chapter 2, 5 to 11, has Jesus himself as the subject. His names. He's called the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is the promised deliverer through whom blessings come to Israel and the Gentile nations, the climax of all history. Jesus is the Son of Man. This phrase means, means far more than just his humanity. It originates in Daniel, interestingly enough. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13, 14. Jesus is the Son of God. God himself so declared on two occasions. Matthew 3, of course, at the, at the uh, baptism. And Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. And, uh, and incidentally, that's also how Satan addressed him. Incidentally, in Matthew 4. It was the high point of the disciples' confession. In Matthew 16, verse 16. And thus, John, 1 John 4. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God... God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Wow. Let's take a look at that again. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. God dwelleth in him, and he in God. That's John speaking. And we get to the whole I am thing. You know, Jesus is the great I am. It was his voice that was in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He makes that claim in John 8, that he was the great I am. In fact... That God, uh, John's gospel is organized around seven I am statements. Seven miracles, seven discourses, and seven I am statements. I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light in the world in John 8. I am the door of the sheep in John 10. I am the good shepherd again in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. I am the vine, ye are the branches in John 15. Wow. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Things, things, things in each case. Now that's, the King James adds that word thing in each of these phrases as an added word by the translators, even though there's no corresponding word in the Greek. Actually, the three phrases are translations of three adjectives in the Greek and may refer to either things or people. It's better to refer to them as personalities, beings in heaven, beings on earth, beings under the earth. It refers to angels, humans, and demons, actually.
we have a passage in Isaiah 45. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. That's echoing from Isaiah 45. Well, of course, in Philippians 2.11 we hear that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there is another name that appears to be above every other name. Did you realize that? The word is Lord in a very special way. The word Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Greek is kurios, the title that citizens of Rome used to acknowledge the divinity of Caesar. This title was never used of the emperors until they were thought to be deified through a religious ceremony. The test phrase, curious Kaiser, meant Caesar is Lord. Christians were executed for not saying these words, insisting that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, is divine. Cost them their life, and they willingly gave it. Wow. The Hebrew term, Adonai, is even more declarative since it served to replace the unpronounceable name of God, Yehovah or Yahweh, or many of the rabbis just pronounce the letters, yod heh vav No, instead of that, they used the word Adonai. But even in the written places, the vowel points were altered to remind the reader to say Adonai instead. Thus, the Old Testament Adonai became virtually synonymous with the Tetragrammaton in practice. That is the unpronounceable name of God. And when the early Christians made their confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, they were actually confessing that Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Israel, Yehovah, the only true God. Furthermore, the word Adonai contains a personal possessive ending. The little yod at the end means my Lord. It makes the whole thing possessive, if you will. We talked about that earlier from Psalm 110.1. It does not just mean Lord or God. It means my Lord, my God. And it is the word that Mary used of Jesus in the garden on resurrection morning. It's the confession that Thomas made eight days later when John used to provide the, a climax to his gospel. And uh, in both cases, the words were personal. It's not enough to merely acknowledge mentally that Jesus Christ is Lord. The devils also do that and tremble, James reminded us. Jesus must be your God. He must be your Lord. And Jesus is coming again. There's another great truth in the title, Lord. It means that Jesus is God. It means that Jesus is sovereign. It also means that Jesus is coming again. In Hebrews 2.8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see, not yet, all things put under him. See, so he has yet to return to conquer evil and to establish his righteous will forever. He's not only the, our kinsman redeemer, as we learn when we study carefully the book of Ruth and so on, he is also our avenger of blood. We're reminded in Nazareth when he opened his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth, he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And then he read to a comma and then closed the book and said, this day is, is this fulfilled in your ears. What's provocative when you study Luke 4, that whole event, 
You just and you compare what he read with what is in Luke. It is in Isaiah chapter sixty-one, verse one and two. You discover he stopped at a comma. The phrase that he didn't include was the day of vengeance of our God. He fulfilled the first part. That comma has lasted two thousand years. He's going to fulfill the second part. Yes, he is returning, but he's going to return as our avenger of blood. Wow. Have you ever noticed the names that Paul uses to refer to Jesus in his letter of the Thessalonians? All through his letter, he uses the personal, most human name, Jesus. When he begins to talk about Christ's return, he then he no longer refers to Jesus as Jesus, but Jesus as Lord. From this point on, the name occurs five times. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, very familiar to you. Do you ever notice that five times there in that passage, it's Lord, the word of the Lord. The Lord shall not prevent them. The Lord himself shall descend. The Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Lord, Lord, Lord. He uses the title. It's not a casual title. It's an elevated title. It's the title of Jesus himself. Paul associated the second coming with the fact that Jesus is Lord. This anticipation is also preserved for us in a prayer in the Aramaic language that's at the end of 1 Corinthians. The term is Maranatha. It's actually composed of two Aramaic words that run together. The word of, to, of come and the word for Lord. If you say Maranatha, the Lord is coming, that's indicative. If you say Maranatha, that's our Lord come, that's in the imperative. But in either case, that's what it is. And John includes this idea in the next to the last verse of the Bible. In Revelation 22, verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. There it is again. So, Paul is not here in Philippians, as elsewhere in his epistles, combating an error of faith. He is simply pleading for a life of love. In Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. Wow. Well, those, that's a, a, a skimming through a passage that's impossible to exhaust it. We've done enough to give you a flavor of the depth that's there if you're willing to put the time into it. And that's called the kenosis, where he empties himself. And... Uh, in our next session now, I want you to re study carefully the remainder of Philippians chapter 2, but with a focus on how you are going to apply the lessons of the kenosis in your personal life. Because with these first few verses, we've set the, 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 the foundation, but the rest of chapter 2 deals with the application of this personally. A very important challenge that each one of us need to take very, very seriously. So with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we can't help but experience 
some overwhelming as we engage this precious, precious passage. As we begin to get a glimmer of the extremes that you've gone to that we might live. We thank you for this glimpse of our Savior, of his pre-existence and his entering the creation to gain for us something we could never gain for ourselves. We thank you, Father, for his, the extremes you've gone to. And we thank you, Father, for the anticipation of the glory that's coming. Oh, Father, we do pray that through your Holy Spirit you would help us appropriate this in our own priorities as we order all of our decisions in the light of his example. Oh, Father, we do pray. We do pray that we would indeed take every thought captive that we would indeed prioritize everything in our lives against this incredible parabola that we encounter in this epistle. We thank you, Father, for your word. We seek your Holy Spirit to help us be effective with it. We pray, Father, for that discernment. We pray that, Father, for, we pray for resolve that indeed these lessons not be wasted, that we might be ever more effective stewards of the opportunities that you bring across our path. As we, without any reservations whatsoever, we commit our way into your hands, indeed, in the name of Yeshua, the great I Am, our coming King indeed. Amen. Maranatha indeed. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.